All right, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Let me ask you to turn to 1 Timothy, chapter, I'm sorry, 1 John, chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to go back to Isaiah 6 and mark that in your Bible also. I think you might find that helpful after a bit. I don't get to preach very often. When I do, my heart asks God, what is it? What is the most important thing that I should focus on? And God answered that this time by saying our country needs great awakening. That is the most important thing you can address. But he said, we can't just talk about awakening of other people. We have to think about what we can do. We have to focus on us. And so that moves us to thinking about our church. And our church in revival. And by that, I'm not talking about having a revival meeting. But the life the new life, the revived life, that revival comes, that brings when it comes. <clears throat> I believe I do not need to tell you how bad off our world is, but I'm going to. Very briefly. We live in a situation in our world, in our country, where Christian businessmen and women are forced to pay extremely high fines or go out of business because by virtue of their religious conviction, they do not want to participate in homosexual ways. Today we have government in America coming down on Christians for their faith. We must not get used to this. We live in a time when the Supreme Court of the United States has declared that homosexual marriage is the law of the land. Many of us consider this a moral tipping point for our country. But when we think about the demeaning of marriage, we have to also recognize that for decades, we born-again people, literally, have been demeaning marriage. It is not uncommon today for even born-again people to be engaging in premarital sex, living together, outside of marriage, demeaning marriage, and the divorce rate among born-again evangelicals is as severe as it is among the secular 
population. But among the things that are happening to the um, born-again Christians, the biblical Christians in America, we find that there has begun by government to make us close our mouths. In Kentucky, the Department of Juvenile Justice has ordered the volunteer chaplains to not speak of homosexual behavior or the associated behavior as sinful or as demeaning in any way. And in fact, they're asked to sign a document that they will not do that. In Warren County, Kentucky, one chaplain has refused to sign that, Chaplain David Wells. And he is stripped, as of now, of his accreditation to serve in the juvenile holding facilities with youth. Moral values in America no longer resemble biblical values. We've been told recently by a Pew Research study that those, the numbers of Christians have declined in America as a percentage of the population. Whereas there were a certain number before, now there are more who register as none. So the nuns are taking over. There's a message in there somewhere. The thing that seems of interest in this regard is that actually the evangelical population has increased as a percentage of the population. But on the other hand, the rising generations are smaller and smaller in terms of those who are born again. The teenagers moving into adulthood represent only 8%, only 8% in America of teenagers moving into adulthood hold to a biblical worldview. And a very small number of the millennial generation are born again Christians. Gradually, we are losing the next generation. We can look at the world. We see in China, China's trying to eliminate the cross from all public appearance. Sounds like America, doesn't it? We see in the Middle East and in Africa that Islamic extremists are capturing women and girls and selling them, trading them on the market as sex slaves. And then saying, this honors God to do this. We live in a, an amazingly disturbing world. And we need a great awakening. 
I've entitled a message, The Awakening That Must Come. The must in that title doesn't mean, contrary to some opinion, that I am a musty preacher. It does not mean that it must come as though it is inevitable. What it means is that it's urgent, and it's urgent that it come. It must come. Henry Blackaby is a man whom I have great regard for. He's been used of God in these later decades, last several of the last century and of this century, to speak like a prophet for God. He's like the men of Issachar in the Old Testament who seem to have an understanding of the times. And he does and he speaks well for God. 25 years ago, when I first heard him speak in person, Henry Blackaby said, and I'm not sure I can quote him exactly, but here's the point. He said, you know, of course, that the condition of our country is directly related to the condition of our churches. And I understand that. This is still true. And that brings us to think about the revival of the church that is needed. And then it brings us to us. Because I don't think there's much point in us preaching about them. It's about us that we need to be concerned. And so we think about revival in our church. And let me take you through my thought process and my prayer process as I confronted this. My first thought was, God, our church is in pretty good shape. Do we really need revival? When I first came to Hamilton, I was impressed with a number of godly men in this congregation. And then as I became acquainted with the godly women. Our church has a a great pastor and a great staff. And we feel good about this. We have reason to be comfortable with that. We have an excellent body of elders who lead us well. We have excellent leadership. I believe they're spirit-filled men who lead us. We have an excellent facility. Our church has no debt. We have money in the bank. We're engaged in missions, both hands-on, boots-on-the-ground mission, and excellent giving to missions. We have a warm fellowship. But the baptistry is dry. We're not a cold church. But as I thought about it, I also thought, we are not a hot church. And then I was frightened. Because I remember in the third chapter of the Revelation, what Jesus thinks about a church that's neither hot nor cold. And I conclude that a revival of our church is needed. Let's talk about what revival means. 
And I'll go back to Henry Blackaby here. Henry Blackaby defines revival in these terms. He says, when holy God draws near in true revival, people come under terrible conviction of sin. The outstanding feature of spiritual awakening has been the profound consciousness of the presence and holiness of God. That's what happened to Isaiah. He said in another place, during true revival, thousands of lost people are suddenly swept into the kingdom of God. Scenes of the lost coming to the Savior in great and unprecedented numbers are common. And again he says, all revival begins and continues in the prayer meeting. Some have also called prayer, he says, the great fruit of revival. And in times of revival, thousands may be found on their knees for hours, lifting up their heartfelt cries with thanksgiving to heaven. Week before last, our prayer sheet, our weekly prayer guide, which I hope you use, had this entry. Pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our community, our country, and worldwide. Pray also for the stirring of revival in our church. But I have a question. Is there a time when prayer for revival is inappropriate? That's a goofy question. But let's think about it. A.W. Tozer, who was no slouch for revival or prayer, had this to say. Have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and no revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying. And it simply will not work. Here's my conclusion. Prayer for revival is always appropriate. But I challenge you about the character of your praying that you not use it to hide behind instead of obeying God. Should never be used as a shield for disobeying God. Isaiah, and here you can look at your Bible in Isaiah. Isaiah is a great example of an individual who had revival. When we talk about revival in the church, we must talk about the individual. And I trust that when you're praying for revival, you're not just praying for them. Lord, get them revived. Get me revived. And the true nature of prayer has to do with not just shaping God to what we want, but shaping us to what he wants. And if we pray for revival in that way, 
then it shapes us and revival begins with us. Isaiah is a great example of an individual who was revived. And you can look down through that passage that Steve read a moment ago, and you can see these events happening, and it should be a template for revival in my life and your life. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, holy, and he was overwhelmed because then he saw his own sinfulness and he was convicted of his sin. He saw the Lord, he was convicted of his sin, he confessed his sin, he was cleansed of his sin, he committed himself to God to spread the word and he was commissioned by God to go spread that word to a people who badly needed revival. Get that pattern. Saw the Lord holy, high, exalted, lifted up. Saw his own sin, convicted of his sin, confessed his sin, cleansed of his sin, committed himself to God, was commissioned by God to spread the world to a people who badly needed revival. Our text is 1 John chapter 1 down through verse 2 of chapter 2. 1 John was written to a people who needed real revival. And real revival in this letter is described in terms of an intimate fellowship with God. It's that time when you get so close to God, you really see his holiness. Then it shows you for who you are. That intimate fellowship with God is real revival. Let me read these verses for you. Beginning in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, if we say that we don't need revival, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, 
I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We take this passage in three sections. First, the life, and then the message, and then the remedy, or the advocate that we have, the helper that we have. First of all, the life is Jesus Christ himself. And he's describing Jesus as God incarnate. And let me just observe that all revival is centered in the person of Jesus Christ, but because it's revival, it has to do with our relationship with that one Jesus Christ. All revival is centered in the person of Jesus Christ and in our relationship with him. This life is described from the beginning. He's real flesh. Now, John is writing to a people who have been pestered by a false teaching from the Gnostics. And some of that is in the background here. And we're not going to go into that. But that's some of the point he's saying that Jesus is real. He really was real. He was a real human being. We saw him. We felt him. We talked with him. We heard him. He's real flesh. We heard he was heard. He was seen. He was touched. He was God in human flesh. This is real. He was experienced by John and by the other apostles in reality. He was named the word of life. He was proclaimed what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we proclaim it. So that you'll have that fellowship. And that fellowship is this real revival that God wants us to have. This fellowship is an intimate fellowship with God. And as we'll see in the message, in the passage that follows, beginning in verse 5, it is walking in the light and is dealing with the sin in our lives. So let's look at the message. The message that God gives us in verses 5 through 10 is God's description of what real revival is. And you can take it from God and apply it to your life. It's real. It's for sure. It's authentic. The first part of the message is that God is light and him, in him there's no darkness at all. One of the things that says is that God is not in the business of compromising with our sin. We come to God and say, well, God, yeah, I know I do these things, but these are little sins. You'll overlook these. It's not important that I do these little things. They don't really bother anybody. Well, I leave out some things that I ought to be doing. Uh, all these dark things in my life, we call them little but God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I saw an illustration recently that a light casts no shadow. The light itself casts no shadow. There's no darkness at all in Jesus Christ. It's the nature of light 
Light drives out darkness. Light purifies. And if I walk in that light, then darkness in my light is driven out and my life is purified. The closer we get to holy God, the more our sins are exposed, the more our sins are evident, even little sins, and we no longer feel that these are okay. And somehow God will, oh, that's okay, and let it go. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that's us, isn't it? If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And they're not the truth. What John, God is saying to us, to John, he's saying, come on, get real. You can't have it both ways. You can't walk in the light. You can't have fellowship with God and still be dabbling with sin. In real revival, your walk matches your talk. Your talk matches your walk. And you are authentic as a Christian. Verse 7 is one of the great verses in the Bible. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's understand this verse. If we walk in the light, the light here is not God's laws or God's ordinances or God's statutes, so the way to live, the light is God himself. That's what he just said in verse 5. God is light. And if we walk in light, we are walking in the presence of God. And walking in the presence of God is an awesome experience. Living in God's presence has two results. Actually, has more. But we see two right here. But ask Isaiah about it. This was Isaiah, the experience that he had. First, we have fellowship with one another. Now, I've long understood that the one another was us folks. But as I've understood and come to study this passage, I've come to understand that it means us and God. The one another is us and God. We have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, we together have fellowship with God. Or that's real revival. Now we're describing it. Now God is describing it. We have the intimate fellowship with God. So we have that fellowship with one another, us and God. But we also have that Jesus, by his blood, cleanses us from all sin. <clears throat> and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all Why is that mentioned here? Well, because as we get close to God, our sin is exposed, and we understand the need for our sin to be cleansed. And the blood is there for that. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to pay for our sin. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. I've recently been having a conversation 
with a man who believes that somehow we can come to Christ and that makes us a Christian but there's a lot of leftover sin in our lives that we have to pay for and that even when we die there's leftover sin that we have to pay for that have to be purged from our lives and I submit to you and to him that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how much? all sin there's nothing left over no leftovers that's called purity no leftovers awesome makes chills go up and down your spine to think of what God does for us in real revival and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin the intimate fellowship with God or real revival is not possible without the cleansing of sin so as we approach God we must be anxious we must be eager for our sin to be exposed and to be revealed and to be cleansed for as long as we're hiding it and tucking it away and trying to compromise with God about it it's not going to happen and real revival is not happening God expressed this in this way when he inspired David to write Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 David says who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place and the answer is he who has clean hands the outward expression of life and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul his inner person to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully this ought to be our concern every time we come into this place here to worship God we ought to be asking that question that David asked who may come into God's presence to worship him we ought to ask it when we get up on Sunday morning we ought to ask it as we prepare our hearts to leave home with our families to go worship and to be ready to worship God and then in verse 8 and 9 and 10 we have to deal with our sin if revival is going to happen we have to deal with our sin what this passage says to me is well let's see what it says if we say that we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves we're in denial and that won't work denial is self-deception it's untruthful it won't work so verse 9 is another one of those really great verses in the Bible if we confess our sin he is faithful and just if we confess our sins plural he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness now we have to unpack this a little bit I want you to look at that word confess it really doesn't do justice to what God is saying to us here the word is a word that really means to speak the same 
Let's just do a little Greek. You can handle it. The word is homo logero. Homo. You know what that means? Come on. The same. It means the same. Homosexual, same sex. You know what homogenized milk is? Homogenized milk? That's what you drink all the time. The cream is, well, maybe the cream is separated. But in homogenized milk, the cream is distributed evenly throughout the milk. It's the same throughout. Okay? Homo means the same. Logao means to speak. So it means to speak the same. So a literal translation is, if we speak the same about our sins, what does that mean? Well, it means if we agree with God. He says, your sins are like this. I speak the same. He says, that little sin you're trying to write off. God says, I think it stinks. You say, I agree with you, God. I think it stinks. And you get real about it. That's what it means, as God is saying it here, to confess your sins. It's not just to rattle off your sins. Oh, God, I told a lie yesterday. It's more than that. God, I told a lie yesterday, and you think it stinks? It cost Jesus his life on the cross, and it's terrible. And I agree with you, God, it's terrible. And I repent of it. There is much more in that word than just rattling off your sins. A bunch of lying items of what you're giving to God about your sins. It's agreeing with God about your sins. It's getting in the reality of why there is atonement on the cross. All of that is in that word as you agree with God about your sins. Then when you get there, that's your part. God's part is, and he's faithful to do it. That's his promise. He's faithful to do it. He is faithful and just. New American says he's righteous. Either one is a good translation. I like the just because what's just about it for him to forgive your sins? Well, it's just because he paid for them. Therefore, it is just he can do it. If he didn't pay for it, then it wouldn't be just. But it is a righteous thing. It is a just thing. All you have to do is see Jesus on the cross. And when you do that, there's the price paid for you and for your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness. Is that what he says? Come on. All. All unrighteousness. And in your Bible, if you mark your Bible, you can draw a line, circle all sin in verse 7 and all unrighteousness in verse 9 and connect them. They are. That's the way God does things. When Jesus died on the cross, he finished the job. He didn't do it halfway. It wasn't a poorly done job. It's all done. And that's why he said, it is finished. Nothing undone. God's response is faithful and righteous. So, if we refuse to deal with our sin, as verse 8 suggests, and 10 suggests, we don't get in on that. And we get left out. We must deal with our sin. But we have a helper. John says, I'm writing this to you 
so that you won't sin. But he knows we sin. So he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Who is this advocate? His name is Jesus. He tells you right there. Jesus Christ, the righteous. But the interesting thing about it is, this word advocate in the Greek is the word paraclete. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said he was going to send another helper. But here it's applied to Jesus. And God, the Father, inspiring the Holy Spirit, inspiring John to write this, uses this in description of Jesus. One called alongside. That's the real technical meaning of the word paraclete, to be a helper. His name is Jesus. We've already read about him in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. He's with the Father. He's righteous or just. It's the same word as in verse 9. He's the one who paid for our sin. That's what propitiation means. He's the one that can help us. He was there. He paid for the sin. And so he's going to be an intercessor for us. Um, He's going to be our helper. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction, the means of mercy for our sins. And not only that, but his merciful payment is far-reaching. It's not only for us, it's for the whole world. And so we're back where we began. If revival can begin in you, and why not? If revival can begin in me, why not? It can begin in our church and spread to the country and spread to the world. Why not? Is God so limited? Of course not. You wouldn't say that for a minute. This is how real revival might lead to a fresh awakening in our land. Some years ago, several decades ago, there was an evangelist by the name of Manly Beasley. Manly Beasley had a way of speaking of atmospheric revival. And I was puzzled about what he meant by that. And I'm not sure I know, to be honest with you. But I have concluded, at least here's what I mean by it. Atmosphere touches everything. And I want a revival that touches everything. Atmospheric revival. As I pray, as our prayer sheet asks us to do, for the stirring of revival in our church, I ask, what about us? What about me? What about you? In a moment, I'm going to extend an invitation, as I normally do when I preach, as you know. I'm going to ask you to join me in public commitment. Get real. Public commitment to walking in the light and dealing with our sins. You can do that.
I'm also going to give you an opportunity during this time to trust Jesus as your Savior. There's someone here who has never yet trusted Christ as Savior. And I'm going to ask you to be public about it. Jesus died for you publicly. I'm going to ask you to come and meet me here at the front and be public about it. And say by this, Pastor Glenn, I give my life to Jesus. I openly profess him to be my Savior. And I will follow him. I will follow him as Lord of my life. You can't be revived until you've first been vived. And I'm asking you to be vived right now and make it public. Pray with me first, will you please? Our mighty Father, I thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will now, you'll fall upon our church, you'll fall upon me. You'll give us a great conviction, Lord, of our sin. And uh, such a disturbance in our inner persons that we cannot be content. We cannot be a content person. We cannot be a content church until you have revived us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.